We began our study of Hosea two weeks ago, and last week we you know, took a little break as we dedicated this facility to the glory of God and the work of His kingdom in the years to come. And today we return to Hosea. When I think of all the implications of this book of the Bible, I'm often overwhelmed with anxiousness. You know, I've read through this Bible, through this book, multiple times over the previous months daily. And as I read, I more and more am anxious, overwhelmed by the truth that is contained in this little prophecy. It's, it's difficult to preach a message that's totally out of step with the world that we live in. Not only is this message out of step with the world we live in, sadly, this message is out of step with the world of evangelical life today as we experience it in the Western culture. Hosea is a dramatic presentation. I mean that in the most pure sense. It is drama at its uh, most uh, gripping place. It's a, in a sense of tragedy. This, this little book is second only, in my mind, to the story of Jesus Christ. His incarnation in the flesh, His life of perfect obedience, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Second to that picture and that beautiful display of humility and love and covenant relationship. Second to that, in my mind, in all the books of the Bible, is the book of Hosea. There's there's no other place in the Bible we find so much wrapped in so few verses about the covenant relationship of God and how He cares for His people. God graciously inspired this full-length drama of His loving relationship with the church in the Old Testament prophecy. Because the story is an illustration, I'm going to refrain from personal illustrations. I, I think they only will cloud the biblical illustration. So in this, uh, especially in these first three chapters, there's not going to be a lot of stories. There's not going to be a lot of examples. There's going to be a lot of the Bible and explaining of that text. Because for me to insert more stories on top of a story could get very confusing in your mind. Okay? So I know that often I use illustrations and you may think, well, I wish you'd use them. This is the illustration. This is God's illustration. Who am I to improve on God's illustration? It's just impossible. So we come to this with a sense of humility, with a sense of overwhelmed anxiety, at least for me and maybe for some of you. And before I launch into the message, we also approach this text with the full view of God's love and grace. Please, I, I can't say this any stronger than, than I will say it today. What you will hear over the next few weeks may very well challenge what you've traditionally held and believed about your life, about marriage, about God's relationship to us. And I know the temptation will be to shut it off and to say that's just not the way it is. I just don't accept that. And you are free to have that estimation. Okay? I cannot bind your conscience. I cannot make you believe what I'm teaching. I don't want to do that. But what I will do, and I promise to you before God that I will do, is I will present what I do faithfully believe is the Word of God to you. And I will pray along with you that by His grace we will come to understand it fuller, myself and you, and apply it fully 
in our lives, regardless of the cost, inconvenience, and conviction that it brings to us. Okay? This is a message of God's love for His people. But it has deep ramifications for you. Practically. Practically. Mainly in your marriage. Last night, God set up for me launching into this series. I planned this series a year ago. My brother came to me in the summer and asked if I would marry him to Anna Lee on December the 13th. A year ago, I planned the message. A few months ago, my brother asked me to marry him last night. And tonight, today, God had us in this text. Okay, that's beyond human planning. I can't do that. I also am very aware that many of you are experiencing trials in your marriages. And I did not plan this message in response to your problems and your struggles and your trials. Please, as we go through this text, let's be committed to see God's Word to us as His people. And may the Holy Spirit bless that, the teaching of His Word. Today we look at the first chapter of Hosea as we come face to face with a story of faithfulness in the midst of unfaithfulness. And that's the title of the message for me. A story of faithfulness in the midst of unfaithfulness. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, and we're going to go through 2 verse 1. And I know it's a passage that we read last week or two weeks ago, but I want to read it again. We need to get our bearings straight as we go into this message. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children, children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblim, and he con- she conceived and bore Hosea a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Call her name No Mercy. For I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow. I will not save them by sword. I will not save them by war. I will not save them by horses or horsemen. But when Gomer had weaned, finished nursing, no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord called him, and the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. Lo Ami. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land for great 
shall be the day of Jezreel, say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. First of all, we see in this passage that God sometimes commands us to live out our faith in extremely difficult circumstances for His own purposes. God sometimes brings us, as His people, into very difficult places. Very difficult circumstances for His own purposes. We see this in verses 2 through 3. Because it's not Hosea's choice to marry Gomer. It's God's choice for Hosea. God actually commanded Hosea to marry a woman that would prove to be unfaithful. I mean, let your mind wrap around that. Even as earthly fathers, let your mind go to the place where you would say to your son, choose this bride because she's not going to turn out to be faithful to you, son. And yet that's what God did. God commanded it. Some people, because of this seeming un, uh, impractical command of marrying a woman who is unfaithful, some have wrongly, I believe, believed that this was just a parable. Some have said in their commentaries that this is just a fictitious story used by God, created by God and used by God to show His relationship to His people. John Calvin, no less, in his commentary, says that this is not an actual marriage that we see. This is not God's command to a real man. This is a story. This is a parable. This is an Old Testament fictitious play. In a sense. Well, I don't always agree with John Calvin. And sometimes as great a mind as he was, he was wrong. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that with the evidence of the text. Notice in verse 1, which we didn't read. Does that look like the beginning of a fairy tale? A parable? A fictitious story? The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That sounds like a fictitious story to some, but to me it does not. Maybe it's my, his, my training in history. My undergrad in history tells me that when an ancient writer starts a story out with a detailed explanation of who the man is and what time it is that he's serving. It's an actual account of a real event, not a story being made up. Parables, if you go to the New Testament, never include the exact names of who the parable is about. Think about Jesus' stories, his parables. A man sowed some seed. A man. Ten virgins had lamps. Five lost the oil and five had oil. Five left and weren't ready when he came back and five were ready. No specific names. No specific real locations. Just general stories. That was fiction in their day. That was parable in that day. In their listeners' ears, if there was an absence of a name, an absence of a place, an absence of a, absence of a real event that they know took place, they automatically said, this is a parable. But in turn, when they heard in their oral, remember, their oral learners, Hosea first said these things, not wrote them. So when Hosea writes the oral account, and he goes to such struggle to say, it was me, the son of Bari, so you don't forget who I am. You see, under the reign of all of these kings, 
the people reading that account in the ancient world would have automatically said, this is an actual event. This happened. This is a truth. And you say, why are you spending so much time convincing us of that? I already thought it was true. Well, because when this gets difficult, trust me, many of you will say, oh, it's not a real event. When we get down to the brass tacks and a man's wife is sleeping around on him with every man in town, you're instinctively going to say God would not command that for one of His children. God would not lead His children into such despicable, sinful circumstances. God just wouldn't do that. And that's all I want you to remember. This is a real event. This is a real story. This actually happened to a real man. And God sometimes commands us, His people, to live in very difficult circumstances. And He has His own purposes and reasons. This is a true story. It's told as a true story. Nothing in the book would lead us to suspect it's not a true story. God ultimately wanted Hosea and Gomer to be living portraits of His relationship with His people. God commanded Hosea to do something that was very difficult. And His purpose was that you and I could see, the people of Hosea's day could see His relationship with His people. Now, it's nice when we know the purpose of God, isn't it? You read about Hosea and you say, as bad as that was, it was worth it. That's because you're not Hosea. That's because it's not your wife. That's because it wasn't you who went into the marketplace and saw all the whispers behind your back and the laughing jokes that were told at your expense. And a wife who came home battered, used, spent, wasted. It's easy to say, oh, to God be the glory. Great things He has done. He's given us this drama. And Hosea and Gomer and this picture of God's relationship with you. That's a beautiful thing. That's because we're not Hosea. Some of you may be going through a Hosea-like experience, though. Some of you may be suffering today with similar events. And so I say... I don't say, I don't preach these things to make light of your real circumstances. Neither am I saying that they are easy. No matter what God's purposes are. I'm saying God sometimes takes us to places that are not easy. That are, to be frank, hell on earth. For the express purpose that He has. That we may or may not know. But this is a portrait. The first three chapters, there are 14 chapters. The first three chapters are solely a story of a man and his wife and their life after a marriage that God commanded. Let's look at some of this uh, information. Hosea chose a wife. And I think instinctively we want to think that she was already unfaithful. But I don't think we have to think that. There's nothing that indicates he chose Gomer because she was already a temple prostitute, as some might say. Or because she was already living an unfaithful and free life in the sexual realm. There's no reason to believe that. As a matter of fact, we seem to have a picture of a woman who was faithful. Look at the description of their first birth. It's Hosea's son. I mean, 
without the proof of science, how would you know that it's your son? Well, because she's faithful. She's a faithful woman. So the beginning of their marriage, I believe, and I think there's some evidence, that it was a beautiful marriage. It was exciting. It was fun. It was stable. They had a child. I mean, Hosea may have sat and thought, I know what God said, but it's just doesn't look like this is what's going to happen. Everything's going to be all right. Maybe I misunderstood. The name Hosea means salvation. It's the same Hebrew, basically the same Hebrew word as Joshua, which in the New Testament is translated to us Jesus. Hosea is a picture of God in this story. She, this wife of Hosea, Gomer, did not seem to want to be saved. She did not seem to want to return from her sinful ways. She kicked and screamed and ran from his pursuit, actually. And yet he continued to pursue her. The picture of Christ relating to his people is unmistakable in this book. Because we are Gomer. We are Gomer. I know that over lunch today, there will be a temptation to say, Well, I'll tell you what. If my wife, if you, woman, ever treat me that way, I'll have you in court so fast, your head will spin. I know it's a temptation. But it's not the picture. The picture is you at your lunch table today should be saying in front of your children there's absolutely no act which can sever the bond which we have in our marriage by the grace of God. There is nothing. There's nothing. And if you go into these un, unlawful, despicable acts, I will pursue you. You are my bride. I love you with an eternal love. It's easy to pull ourselves out of the story and look at Jose and Gomer and say, Well, Jose is a fine guy. It's tougher to say, Am I Hosea? That's where the rubber meets the road. Am I Hosea? I can't answer that question for anybody in this room except myself. Under the grace of God, it is my desire to always respond as Hosea responded. Hosea's obedience led him in a horrific life of pain and suffering for the glory of God. In our evangelical culture, we're told, obey and good things happen. Because God loves you. And love always means a banana split with extra chocolate and caramel. No. Very often God's love comes as discipline. Very often God's love to you is communicated with silence. Often His love comes in the form of fiery trial. Destructive relationships. 
ruined careers. Broken. Hurting relationships with your husband and wife even. That's how God's love comes sometimes. I don't say that lightly. Very seriously. I'm telling you. If today you do not experience the discipline of God, the silence of God, you do not experience the hurt of a betrayal that you thought you could never withstand, it's coming. It's not, maybe it will come. It will come. This evangelical dream of God giving us Cadillacs and Mercedes Benz and growing our bank accounts and building our homes and sending us on extravagant vacations is hogwash. It is a lie from the pit of hell so that when you suffer, you will say, God doesn't love me. Because if He loved me, He wouldn't treat me this way. We're being set up by the one who seeks to devour our faith when we believe the lie that everything goes good and right for those who pray and give their money and come to church and go on a mission trip once in a while. That is a lie. From the pit of hell, it is a lie. And not only are we preaching it, in our churches and living it in our country, God forbid we're taking it to other countries. So that people who are in, in famine with no food to feed their children are being told, just pray this sinner's prayer and then your crops will grow and you will be wealthy and healthy and wise and your children won't die. Hogwash. Lie. That is the thief of hell trying to steal authentic faith. What we should be telling them is cling to Christ. It may get worse. It may stay the same. It might get better. But that has nothing to do with God loving you. That has nothing to do with God's statement that He will keep His Word until the kingdom come. No one has given up brother or sister or wife or husband or home or property in this life for my name's sake that won't have it given to them again. Not in this life, but in the next. This weak, watered down lie which we're selling Is sending millions to hell. And so I say God sometimes commands you and me to face unbearable circumstances for His own purposes. And one of them is so that we'll be free from this world and free from this entanglements and cling to Christ. I see Hosea laying prostrate in his room Crying out to God, oh God, keep my wife from dying. Oh God, bring Gomer back. Oh God, please save my marriage. Only to rise from his floor and walk through his door and see her going into another man's bed instead of his. Sometimes God's answers puzzle us completely. And they don't look like love as we have defined it, but I promise you they are covenant love. This is horrific. He had three children in this marriage. His first child was named Jezreel. We find that in the third verse. After their marriage, she conceived and bore Hosea a son. And he, he's told to name him Jezreel. And I one commentator said he surely thought God misspoke or he misheard because Jezreel sounds like Israel in the Hebrew. And Israel means God perseveres. And Jezreel means God scatters or scatters. I mean, how would you like for your firstborn son to be named scattered? 
Doesn't sound like good times are coming. God said you're going to marry a whore. She's going to play the whore. And now we have a son and things look like they're going well. And then God says, name him scattered. And then he gives the prophecy connected with the name. I'm going to punish the house of Jehu, the king of Israel, the northern tribes, sitting on the throne of Samaria. God says, I'm about to destroy them. Why? Because of what they did to that righteous man Naboth in the valley of Jezreel in 1 Kings 21 and 22. You see, Ahab, the king of the northern tribes, wanted the vineyard of Naboth. And he said, I'll buy it from you. And Naboth said, it's not for sale. He said, I'll trade you land for it. And he said, far be it from me to give away the inheritance which God gave to my brethren. And Ahab, the king, went home and laid down on his bed and turned his back to the, to the room and wept and cried and would not eat. And his wife, Jezebel, came in, that wicked woman, and said, Why do you cry? Naboth won't sell his property to me. Are you spineless? You're the king of Israel. And so she left the room and forged his name and sent out a decree that there should be a fast called Naboth at the head of the table and two unruly men should slay him. When she got news he was dead, she went into Ahab, her husband, and said, the vineyard is yours. And God said, you will surely die where the dogs lapped up the blood of Naboth, you will die. And in chapter 22, Ahab fell in battle. And Jezebel was killed in Samaria. And all of their followers were slain in the valley of Jezreel by the hand of Jehu, who then took power. And now God in Hosea is saying, I judged them, but... Now I will judge the house of the one who I used to judge them. So all of Jehu's descendants will be destroyed. There will be no king in Israel. And the kingdom of the north will disappear. It will be gone. I won't preserve it any longer. Name your son scattered. It foretold of the coming scattering and deportation of God's people in the northern tribes. And it happened in 722 B.C., they were conquered and carried off into captivity. The second child was a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah. And we find her in verse 6. And her name means no mercy. God is characterized by mercy and love in the Bible. And yet in this verse it says, I'll have no mercy. There again is the picture of the contrast between God's definition of love and our worldly definition of love. In Psalm 136, he repeats again and again, the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. Twenty-six times he says this phrase. The psalmist does. God is characterized and named as the God of love, of the God of mercy. And yet he says, I will not have mercy. And the third child, not my people. Israel was defeated in 722. I mentioned that. And they were never a kingdom to themselves again. They were totally destroyed. God kept His word. In Romans 11, we're told by Paul that even Israel was cut off from the olive. And the Gentiles were grafted in. So that these are not my people. Not only did he have, the part of this being horrific, not only is it that he had three children with a woman who's unfaithful, but he had at least two illegitimate children which he fathered. His second and third children are not his children. 
If you look at the text, in verse 3 it says she conceived and bore Hosea a son. In verse 6 it says she conceived again and bore a daughter. And then down in verse 8 it says she conceived and bore a son. And notice their names. No mercy and not my people. These were not Hosea's children. These were the children of her unfaithfulness. And yet God says you will be their father. They are not naturally your children. But they are your children. You see, this picture is complete. You have the legitimate child, Jezreel. You have the illegitimate children. No mercy, not my people. You have Israel. And you have spiritual Israel. You have those who by their birth and their, and, their, and their upbringing and the law and the covenants belong to God. They are legitimate. And then you have the illegitimate Gentiles who have no claim to the inheritance. And yet God says, those are my children. I'll have them. And it's made complete at the end of the passage when he renames them. He says, call not mercy, mercy. And call not my people, my people. They're going to be one. Israel and spiritual Israel will be one. And they'll have one head, Jesus Christ. This is a picture of God's love for you. When Satan ran in and said, But they're not Israelites, they're not your children. God said, by the blood of my son, they are mine. They have no legitimate claim by their birthright. They have a claim by faith, which is stronger than birthright. Be gone. You have no standing in my place. That's what God said over you in the covenant. God said, you are my people, and I will have mercy. On you. The most, one of the most amazing things in this passage is we never see Hosea respond in anger. You can read the whole book and you won't find Hosea respond in any way but love and mercy. God always remains faithful, even when His people are unfaithful. God never wavered, even in Israel's time of disbelief and denying Him. God never wavered. In verse 10, we see, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. God is faithful. God judges the people for the sake of discipline. All that He did to them was so that they might be treated as sons. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, we find that God loves His children and that all of the sons which He loves, He disciplines. And so, we have this drama. We have this story. And it's set in... Such an ancient culture with such ancient people and ancient uh, uh, cultural idioms. So separated from us and yet it speaks directly to us. Christian, we are Gomer. You have proven it even as I have preached. Because in your heart, you have said, how despicable, how nasty and defiled 
can a person be to leave a righteous husband and be a harlot and a worthless, no good wife? That proves you are Gomer. That very thought which crossed your mind of how despicable she is means you have her sin because you yet don't understand God's grace, God's gospel. Some of you proved that you're Gomer as I preached because you said, I would and will never commit that sin. You're self-righteous. You are adulterous. You don't understand the gospel. There is no man in this room, myself, the chief of you in this regard, that is above sexual Sin. And the very moment that you rise to say, I would never, may be the very moment that you fall. Because God disciplines all of us who He loves, and He will not accept our self righteousness. And so sometimes the purges of self righteousness, we all we become guilty of the very sin we thought we were above and beyond. It has happened time and again in God's church. So I don't stand up here saying, oh, I'd never be Gomer. I would never cheat on my wife. I would never commit adultery. I have no pride. I have no false conception of my ability to keep covenant. And I warn you, Christian, don't have that false sense of security from pride. I also would say that there is no woman in this room who is above sexual sin. It may come in different fashions and forms, but in our day, more women are having affairs than men. For the first time, the threshold has reversed. More women are unfaithful now in our culture. Don't think you're above it or safe from it. Cling to Christ. One lesson Gomer teaches us is that we are adulterers in our very hearts. Not just sexually adulterous, but some of you are worshiping your bank account, your job. The American dream. Your children. Your spouse. Your friends. Your standing and position in society. Some of you are worshiping a piece of plastic that comes in all kinds of dimensions and displays dots on a screen. Or is controlled by the click of a mouse. Some of you are sitting down at the altar of entertainment, enjoyment, relaxation, retirement. There may be any number of gods among us, but I'm telling you, there are other gods, and we are worshiping them in our hearts, and so doing. We are Gomer. There is no room for you to leave here saying, in condemnation of Gomer, how could she ever do that? You should leave saying, Oh God, but by your grace, I'm cleansed from my adultery. Christian, we not only have that, 
But we are the fulfillment of my people. The joyful message of Hosea is God wasn't done when He finished with the Old Testament. He continued in the New Testament to paint the picture of the covenant of grace. And now we have believers on every continent, in every ethnic group, known to man. You are here hearing a Christian message from the book of Hosea because God has kept His Word. And the fulfillment of Hosea is being acted out in our day as us illegitimate Gentiles are being saved by the grace of God. If that, Christian, doesn't make your heart well up, if that doesn't make your mouth want to sing praise, if that doesn't make you want to run to your neighbor and to your friend and to your coworker to say, you've got to know this covenant God which I serve, then I would say, really examine your place and your position and whether you are in Christ. If seeing that you being illegitimate have been made legitimate by the blood of Christ doesn't make you want to run to tell the nations, you might not know Him. The motivation for evangelism in the Scripture is not conversion. The motivation for evangelism in the Scripture is the glory of our covenant-keeping God. That is the motivation. When you leave here, you should be saying, I'm not going to so that my teammate will be saved or my classmate will be saved or my fellow worker will be saved or my neighbor or my wife or my husband will be saved. You should be leaving saying, Oh, the whole world needs to know about this God. The glory of this God must be spread. The fame of this God must reach the ends of the earth. I will go and tell the world of this covenant-keeping God. That's the motivation. If someone is saved, that's the byproduct. It's significant, but it's only the byproduct. Motivation comes from knowing who God is. Daniel said, the people who know their God will make Him known. I'm telling you, knowing your God will motivate you to preach the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, then the application is simple. You have no clue what this love looks like. And I don't blame you for saying, this is absolutely ridiculous. If my wife or husband ever does what you've described this woman did to her husband, she'll be lucky if all I do is go to the courthouse. I don't condemn you for that. There's no way you can understand this love. It's not that we're better. It's that we have lived in experience. You can't fully apply this as a non-Christian. Because you may have a wife or a husband that is unfaithful and you may stay with them as an unbeliever, but you will not love them the way Hosea loved Gomer. You can't do it. It's humanly impossible. And so if you are lost today, and this love that I've described intrigues you, and you say, there's something about this. I've not ever understood this part of what these people call the gospel. I have a lot of questions. Then ask. I want this kind of love. Then confess your sins and believe in Christ. And you will for the first time experience this love. As you go from sinner to saint instantaneously. Hosea never said, Gomer, you can sleep out in the next room until you've proven your faithfulness and earned your place in my house. And that's not what God does. When you come to God today, crying out to Him for covenant love, 
He opens his arms and brings you in immediately. And the adulterer is washed clean. That's what this message is. That's what this gospel is all about. Cry out to him and he will forgive your sin. And he will, more than that, he will establish you as his people. Just so that we close on an encouraging and exciting note, you might think this is an Old Testament principle that doesn't have a lot of connection with us, but I was studying this week and reading through 1 Peter. Listen to what 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, and you tell me, 9 and 10, you tell me if you hear Hosea in Peter's mind. Speaking to those who are scattered Christians in the areas of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, scattered, Jezreel, the scattered, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this his marvelous light. Listen, listen to the words of Hosea. Once you were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter exposits Hosea, verse 10, for us. So I would say, if your disagreements today with what has been said, and there may be disagreements, if there are disagreements today, I do stand on the Word of God, which is unchanged, in Hosea and First Peter. This is God's covenant love. It is available to you in Jesus Christ. Come to Christ and know this covenant love. And Christians display this covenant love to the whole world. Let's pray. Father, as we close...